Assessing Margaret Thatcher's Legacy, today, Monday, April 8th. This is The World. Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady of Britain, has died. We remember a groundbreaking, controversial, and formidable world leader. She was no great diplomat. She believed in saying what she thought. And she said things, frankly, that most men wouldn't dare say. Something about being a woman leader made her, frankly, unembarrassable. We'll have reaction from around the globe, plus how Britain was changed by her rule and her ideas about capitalism. It should be as natural for people to own shares as it is to own their own home or to own a car. Remembering Margaret Thatcher's life and legacy today, this is The World from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service and WGBH Boston. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. Many thought of her as the Iron Lady, with predictably positive or negative associations. Nothing in between. Margaret Thatcher inspired strong emotions at home in the U.K. and around the world. The former British prime minister died today in London after suffering a stroke. She was 87. Thatcher became Britain's first and to date only female prime minister in 1979. She went on to serve in that post for 11 years. And during that time, for many here in the U.S., Thatcher was Britain. Here's the world's Alex Galifant. In 1979, Margaret Thatcher made her first official visit to the White House at the invitation of President Jimmy Carter. The United States is our friend, our ally, and our time-honored partner in peace and war. The history and the destiny of our countries have been and always will be inextricably intertwined. That relationship was made even more special when Ronald Reagan arrived in the White House the following year. In fact, Reagan and Thatcher had already met in London a few years earlier, before either had assumed office, and they saw eye to eye on lots of things. Everything from economics to our ideas of what the role government should play and all, and I was greatly impressed by her. In power, Thatcher and Reagan combined to engineer the end of the Soviet Union, working with the reforming Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev. Margaret was a very active partner. She was a woman of conviction, devoted to her ideological vision, and she didn't hide her views. She was always arguing for them. She thought her experience in politics might help us with perestroika. And while Thatcher and Reagan didn't agree on either British military action in the Falklands or on the American invasion of Grenada, Thatcher was a central partner for the United States. His former Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger. Her role was almost considered part of the American decision-making process, and she had a degree of access to President Reagan, and he had a degree of respect for her that is almost unprecedented, in my experience, among American presidents and any foreign leaders. Margaret Thatcher was invariably forthright. That was her characteristic. Charles Powell was Thatcher's foreign affairs advisor for much of the 1980s. She was no great diplomat. She believed in saying what she thought. And she said things, frankly, that most men wouldn't dare say. Something about being a woman leader made her, frankly, unembarrassable. Overseas, the legend of Thatcher was often simple. 
She was the Iron Lady, scourge of communists. But at home, she divided a nation, not least through her economic policies. Her successor as Prime Minister, John Major, spoke today. The economy was in a frightful mess in the 1970s. Nobody believed it could be reformed. Nobody believed we could move from a neo-socialist economy to a free market economy. And that's effectively what she achieved in the first eight years of the 1980s. Thatcher championed the deregulation and privatisation of Britain. She sold off national interests in oil, gas, transport and telecoms. Former newspaper editor Andrew Neil. People buying shares in companies that never crossed their mind could be anything but owned by the state. And a sense that social barriers had become more fluid. It was a worldview shared by Republicans in the United States. Economic advancement through individual effort and responsibility. But the fruits of Thatcherism, as it came to be known, didn't reach every part of Britain. Many were left behind. For some, Thatcher became an object of hatred. And decades on, it's still hard for people in Britain to move beyond a binary picture of Margaret Thatcher. She won the Falklands War and defeated communism. Or she failed to impose sanctions on apartheid South Africa and offered support to the Chilean dictator Augusto Pinochet. She made her country prosperous. Or she institutionalized greed in British society. In public, at least, Thatcher herself had no doubts when she left office. Ladies and gentlemen... We're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years and we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. That conclusion is still being fought over with pride and with vitriol. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant. Outside Britain and the U.S., opinions about Margaret Thatcher are also divided. For many in Eastern Europe, Thatcher's legacy is clear. She was, for me and for many people in this country, really one of our heroes. She was an inspiration for us. That's former dissident and later president of the Czech Republic, Václav Klaus. He credits Thatcher, as well as Ronald Reagan, for the fall of communism. But for Klaus, Thatcher's appeal went well beyond the Cold War. What we wanted after the fall of communism was to introduce individual freedom, free markets. We tried to fight against the expanding state, against government regulation of all kinds. And in this respect, those are Margaret Thatcher slogans and, and politics. So we were very happy with the fact that she supported always our changes, our reforms. And I'm afraid that no one in Europe understood our efforts as well as Margaret Thatcher. Thatcher's pioneering role as a woman in politics also inspired admiration around the globe. Here's Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first woman to become president of Liberia. I think she was a role model because she came at a time when women participation and women leadership was uh, in scarce supply. And because of her, many of us were inspired, inspired to be strong, inspired to, to follow her footsteps in leadership. Johnson Sirleaf was also the first elected female head of state in all Africa. We heard earlier how Thatcher wasn't exactly diplomatic in conducting government business, but when it comes to relations with China, she scored a diplomatic coup, as the world's Mary Kay Magstad recalls. Margaret Thatcher's biggest impact on China was agreeing to the peaceful handover of Hong Kong. 
She started talking with the Chinese about this in 1982, when then leader Deng Xiaoping made it clear to her that it wasn't a question of whether Hong Kong was going to return to China, but of when and how. So an agreement was drawn up for a 1997 handover with the idea of one country, two systems. Hong Kong would return to China, but for 50 years it would remain separate, with its own immigration procedures, its own independent courts, its own free press, and also tolerance for street demonstrations and limited democracy. Some people say Prime Minister Thatcher sold Hong Kong down the river, but in fact, amazingly, it's kind of worked. I was there the night of the handover. It was a rainy, miserable night when the British flag came down and the Chinese flag went up, and we watched in the wee hours of the morning as the People's Liberation Army vehicles came across the border. There was trepidation. There was there were these questions: What would happen to Hong Kong? What what happens now? And the answer has turned out to be a slight squeeze from Beijing, but most of the old system has continued. I've been to demonstrations in Hong Kong where visiting mainland Chinese look around with great interest, and and they start asking themselves why there can't be a little more of that back home. Margaret Thatcher herself would probably be pleased with that as a legacy left in this part of the world. That was the world's Mary Kay Magset in Beijing. In another part of the globe, Latin America, it's Thatcher's decision to go to war over the Falkland Islands that dominates her legacy. The BBC's Vladimir Hernandez is in Argentina, where he says there's been mixed reaction to the news of Thatcher's passing. For many in Argentina, the name Margaret Thatcher brings immediate memories of the Falklands War. Argentina claims sovereignty over the islands, which it calls the Malvinas, and the issue remains a highly sensitive one. Many Argentines feel resent over her controversial decision to authorize the sinking of the warship General Belgrano during the war, which caused the death of over 300 Argentinian sailors. Predictably, the reaction from the Falkland Islands themselves is quite different today. I'm Patrick Watts, and I was head of Falklands Radio in 1982 when the Argentines invaded the Falklands, and was broadcasting on April the second when the invasion took place. Well, the impact that Mrs. Thatcher had on the Falklands was quite considerable. We loved her in the Falklands, and when she came to visit us on two occasions, she was welcomed with so much open fondness by everybody. We declared Margaret Thatcher Day as the 10th of January because that was the day she first visited us in 1983. No, she will be remembered forevermore in the Falklands as the lady who restored our democracy to us, British democracy, and freed us from unwanted Argentine military occupation. Today, the Legislative Assembly of the Falkland Islands declared that Margaret Thatcher's friendship and support would be sorely missed. Later in the show, more on Thatcher's cultural imprint. Regardless of your opinion of Margaret Thatcher, her career was as a public servant, and we want to take a few minutes to remember now another public servant, one who died far too young for her years, Anne Smedinghoff. She was 25 when she was killed Saturday, doing what she loved, being a diplomat, trying to make a difference in people's lives. Smedinghoff had joined the U.S. Foreign Service straight out of college at Johns Hopkins University. And after a tour in Venezuela, she volunteered to serve in Afghanistan. She was delivering textbooks to children in southern Afghanistan this weekend when her convoy was hit by a suicide bomber. Secretary of State John Kerry praised Smedinghoff's dedication to public service. He said her death was a grim reminder of the risks and importance for pushing for change in one of the toughest places on earth. Smedinghoff had met Kerry during his visit to Afghanistan two weeks ago. 
Kathy Tokarski is Ann Smedinghoff's aunt. Kathy, my condolences to you and the family, first of all. Thank you, Michael. What made Ann want to join the Foreign Service in the first place? Well, I think it was an outgrowth of her combination of intelligence and interest in the world, which I could point to, gosh, grade school. My recollection of her walking into my condo and from the stack of papers, picking up the weekend review section. And she was a kid. Mm. <laughs> and I think to me, it really impressed me that she was interested <laughs> in what was going on outside of, you know, the world of a 11 or 12 year old. So a very young curiosity for the world, but also the trouble spots in the world. I mean, she volunteered to go to Afghanistan. Yes, she did. I think she really wanted to be where she felt she could have an impact and where things were changing in a dramatic way and the potential for good was there. She would have been in Afghanistan for a year this June. What were her impressions of her life there and of life in Afghanistan? Did Did she feel like she was making a difference? Yes, she did. And in addition to serving as a press attache, two of the areas that she focused on were gender issues and rule of law in helping organize women's groups and youth soccer groups. So there were ways that society was beginning to evolve that Anne felt very optimistic about and that she was able to play a role in. When I heard the news about Anne's death this weekend, my thoughts went to Christopher Stevens, who died while on duty last year as ambassador to Libya, immersing himself literally in the community there and building relationships with people. It sounds as if Anne, your niece, had a similar sense of herself in the world. And I'm just wondering if you thought about how to keep encouraging young people like Anne, like Chris Stevens, to keep up the enthusiasm for public service after tragedies like this. I have. And I think that Anne would do something that she knew made a difference. She was not naive to the risks. And I think that is the best of what our country can continue to offer. And I hope that I hope that she can serve as an inspiration. And I would hope that her life would inspire other people. Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much. Kathy Tokarski, remembering her niece, Anne Smedinghoff. You're listening to PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Go pretty much anywhere and you'll find a universal truth of sorts. Teenagers and their parents don't always get along. But sometimes strained relations can spiral into something a lot more serious, like emotional or physical abuse. The world's Anders Kelto is spending time this year at a public high school that serves impoverished families in Cape Town, South Africa. The school is called the Center for Science and Technology, COSAT for short. Most of the courses there focus on math and science, but some recent lessons had to do with family dynamics. Here's Anders' story. Mrs. Godden is an English teacher at COSAT. On Fridays, she likes to have her students debate. What we are doing is we are just sort of arguing. In a recent class, she posed this question to her 10th graders. Who can you talk to about important emotional issues? Your parents or your friends? 
At first, the kids seem hesitant to talk, maybe because there's a reporter with a microphone standing there. But eventually, the debate picks up. Most students say they trust their friends more than their parents. And what the students say about their parents is incredibly negative. Some of our parents are are drunkards. Some of the mothers are like serpents. I'm telling you the truth. Another student says in this township, Kailicha, many parents abandon their kids. Many parents left their children when they were young. They come now out of the blue. And one girl says you can't tell your mother a secret because she'll just tell it to others. But your mother just tell you, here, neighbor, what is a mother? Nothing. A mother is nothing, she says. I had expected a bit of parent bashing, but this went far beyond what I had anticipated. As the debate wraps up, the students spill out of the classroom. I ask Mrs. Godin, what just happened? You have heard those that spoke against parents. They feel so intense about that. She says it's a reflection of the students' home lives. Not only do many students distrust their parents, they hardly speak to them. They really don't communicate to their parents. Mrs. Godin is far from the only one to have noticed that children and parents don't communicate. Social scientists with the South African government think poor communication may be linked to a range of problems students face, including underperformance in school and weak social skills. Worst of all, parents who don't communicate well with their kids may be more likely to abuse them. So the government has begun running interventions around the country to address the problem. One workshop was held here at COSAT. On a Saturday morning, 20 students and their mothers are gathered in a school classroom. An eighth grader named Amanda wears a bright pink and blue outfit with matching shoes. I ask why she's here. Because I heard that this workshop is about creating a relationship between parents and teenagers. That's her answer at first. But when I press her a little, it sounds like there's another reason she's here. She's been getting into huge and often violent fights with her mom. My mother's very harsh. She would beat me, not all the time, but she beats me. Amanda's hoping the workshop will put an end to that. She urged her mother to come. Her mother, Zanel, wears a yellow T-shirt and has her hair pulled back in tight braids. Outside the classroom, I ask what caused her to start using corporal punishment on Amanda. The first time I beat her, it was because she didn't come home when I wanted her to. The second time, she wasn't doing her homework. I also beat her when she doesn't clean the house or wash clothes. Why would you beat her instead of just talking to her? When I talk to her, it seems like she doesn't care. That's why I hit her. She talks openly about the fact that she beats Amanda, perhaps because corporal punishment is so common here. But Zanella's is also coping with a lot of stress. She's raising five kids. Two are hers, and three belong to her sister, who died of AIDS a few years ago. Her only income is a small monthly grant from the government. When I ask about her parenting style, she seems a little bit exasperated and says this. Honestly, I'm a young single mother, and I don't know how to raise kids. I really didn't have parents, so that's why I don't know how to treat my children. The workshop she and her daughter have come to attend requires privacy, so I'm not allowed inside. But during a break, I speak with a psychologist who is running the program. Her name is Anique Givers, and she specializes in child and adolescent mental health. The issue she's hoping to address today is child abuse. She says it's a massive problem in South Africa. 
and it has ripple effects. That may also contribute to a broader culture of, of using violence. To reduce violence, the workshop is focusing on basic communication skills. Giver says at this morning's session, they did a lot of role-playing to get parents and teens better understanding one another. The teenagers got to pretend to be parents and the parents got to pretend to be teenagers um, so they could see what it was like from the other perspective. She's also teaching both sides how to resolve conflicts peacefully. The aim is to show parents that they can discipline their children without becoming abusive. Giver says so far, all the parents have been receptive to that message. The workshop continued for a few weeks. After it wrapped up, I stopped by Amanda and her mom's house. The family lives in a one-room metal shack, one mom and five kids. There's just one bed, duffel bags of clothes stacked in the corner, and a thin curtain separating the bedroom from the kitchen. Amanda's mom cooks stew on a small table, and Amanda sweeps the floor while her siblings play. I ask Amanda how things are going with her mom. She says they're much better. For example, she says, the other night, she and a friend from school were working on a science project. And then I was coming in and out of the house, and it was late. I think it was half past nine. If she had come home at that hour before, her mom would have started shouting at her and beating her, she says. But now, after the workshop, things are different. Her mom calmly asked why she was so late. And then I explained to her that I'm doing this project. And then everything was okay? Everything was okay. Her mom, Zanel agrees that their relationship has improved dramatically. She says their fights were getting so bad and violent that she feared Amanda was going to run away. But now, they know how to solve conflicts peacefully. And Zanel says her life is a lot less stressful. Now, when Amanda and I have a problem, we don't fight. We just stay calm and talk. But there is one exception. If Amanda does something wrong and can't justify her behavior... Her mother can still beat her. I know it's not good to beat a child, but sometimes you have to. It's a way to say no and to show your child what you're capable of. She says that, so far, that hasn't been necessary. So will Amanda and her mom maintain their good relationship? Will there continue to be peace in their home? Those are questions the government researchers running the intervention want to answer. So they plan to follow Amanda and her mom, and other workshop participants, over the next few years. Anik Givers, who led the intervention, says she hopes the results will show a reduction in violence, and that the program will be expanded to reach a lot more students and parents. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto in Cape Town. Anders will be checking in on Amanda and her classmates for the rest of this year. You'll find a lot more on his special series at theworld.org slash schoolyear. Anders is also answering your questions on our Facebook page. Post questions for him there or stop by tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern to chat live. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, a video journalist witnesses the radicalization of a Syrian rebel. At the beginning of the film, his mum laughs off his new appearance with his, he's got his beard and he's got his Kalashnikov and she, she sort of laughs at him and says, look, he doesn't really pray that much. He's mm. not really that religious. But by the end of the film, he's become almost like a, a, a jihadist fighter. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, 
providing medical and health care information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The headlines about the civil war in Syria have become depressingly familiar. Just look at today's news. A suspected suicide bombing in the heart of Damascus killed at least 15 people. The government blamed the rebels for the attack. But even as we report on the latest on the Syrian conflict, it remains frustratingly difficult to get a sense of perspective on what's happening there. To do just that, Ollie Lambert of our partner program, Frontline, decided to spend an extended period reporting from both sides of Syria's war. For five weeks last fall, Lambert crisscrossed the Orontes River, which has now become a dividing line in the civil war. Ollie Lambert joins us now from London. Can you give us a sense of the landscape first? The two sides are on opposite sides of the Orontes River. Describe what the valley was like before the war. For generations, the people in this valley have lived peacefully with one another. Um, It's home to Sunni Muslims, um, Alawites, but also a number of different religions and sects and ethnicities. And these people had farmed together, lived together, they'd been to school together, had intermarried. And that balance had, had held on for about a year into the revolution. But in the last 12 months... There are a number of different clashes. Um, communities started to break up with each other. And it's now become uh, really a sectarian fault line where you have Alawite loyalists on one side of the valley and Sunni Muslims on the other, both increasingly convinced that the people on the other side of the valley are their sworn enemy. And very intense fighting is now taking place between the two sides. Let's look at both of them. Uh, describe the young rebel Ahmad. He's a former policeman, right? Yeah, uh, you do see in the film his increasing radicalization, really. He, at the beginning of the film, his mum laughs off his new appearance with his, he's got his beard and he's got his Kalashnikov. And she, she sort of laughs at him and says, look, he doesn't really pray that much. He's mm. not really that religious. But by the end of the film, he's seen so much, um, as I have with him, that he's, he's become almost like a, a, a jihadist fighter. He wants to join a group called Jabba al-Nusra, which is aligned with al-Qaeda, it was it was kind of tragic to watch, to be honest. Um, then on the other side of the river, we have the Assad loyalists. You also captured an amazing scene of high school students uh, who, in response to your questions, broke into a pro-Assad chant. I'd like our listeners to hear some of that. Now, they're saying here, God, Syria, Bashar, and nothing else. This Assad is no pushover. It is written on the gun. Bashar is a sacred leader. I mean, what's curious is that these kids look so much like American high school students. The big difference, though, is that they're ready to die for a regime and an apparently failing regime at that. Why do they still support Bashar al-Assad so much? I don't think they see the regime as failing. I think, on the contrary, they see Bashar and the regime as the only possible solution to this situation. Um, in a way, it's pl- this, the, the, the conflict has played into Bashar's hands. Um, it, there is now such uh, chaos that amongst people who would previously occupy middle ground and not quite sure which way to turn, there's now a nostalgia for the peacetime that they remember. The other very significant thing that I hadn't expected was the amount of seclusion that people have. In the, um, in the re- we film quite a lot in the uh, regime army checkpoint base. Right. And 
these guys only watch television stations that are operated by the regime. Um, and it's it's propaganda. When you're watching it, it's extraordinary. There, there's almost like these long adverts for the regime and uh, how successful the soldiers are and the great victories that are being won. So there's very little sense of what is taking place more widely in the country and what's happening outside the bubble of the regime and, and, and its supporters. So people are just convinced that what they're hearing is true on both sides of the divide, um, right. and, which is the most dangerous thing going forward in terms of how the conflict might be resolved. I mean, that's kind of striking because the bubble is around both sides in the conflict. I mean, we see Ahmed wandering around documenting the consequences of the bombing, uh, Assad's bombing, getting video on his cell phone. It comes through, I mean, one thing that really comes through through this whole documentary is just the futility of war, this war, kind of any war. Um, what about the people? I mean, is the whole country divided? Or are there people in the middle who also say, this is ridiculous? I mean, this is just a futile war. Uh, there are, undoubtedly. And um, uh, there, I met a few of them, very few who would actually speak on camera. Um, quietly, one person off camera did talk to me in the Alawite village, the, the pro-regime village who expressed frustration with both sides in this conflict. But the nature of the conflict is such that they're, they're, they are not the people who are speaking out. So it's inevitable that it's the fighters and the loyalists who are the people who are most vocal and are taking control, whether that's through their ideas or through their weapons. Ollie Lambert, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Ollie Lambert of our partner program, Frontline. You can find a lot more of Ollie's reporting, including dramatic extended footage of an, of an airstrike he witnessed firsthand. That's at theworld.org. More worrisome signals from North Korea to the world today. It announced the withdrawal of all North Korean workers from an industrial zone jointly operated with South Korea. That's after repeated threatening messages from Pyongyang toward the South and the United States. In fact, there's speculation that the North could be planning to launch a missile against an American target this week. The experts don't seem to think that's likely. But the question remains, which American target could be within reach of a North Korean missile? Time to go to the map. Well, the range of that missile is estimated at about 2,500 miles. That means the West Coast is safely out of range, but not an American island territory in the Pacific. Which one? That's our GeoQuiz question today. This territory is about 2,100 miles from North Korea as the missile flies. Magellan gets credit for discovering this island in 1521. Today, this westernmost U.S. territory is home to a major American military base. We'll reveal the answer and hear how they're dealing with North Korea's bluster in a few minutes. To the Philippines now, where the capital Manila has some of the world's worst traffic. The congestion can make a short trip take hours, and the exhaust from all those cars, buses, and motorbikes can literally make people sick. Now one organization is trying to cut pollution in Manila by replacing some of those vehicles with electric models. But as Jason Struther reports, not everyone's getting on board. Sometimes to get around chaotic Manila, you need to take a trike. Can you take me to the Katipunan LRT station? They're motorcycles with sidecars. They'll get you where you need to go faster than most alternatives, but they're not exactly model urban citizens. 
Trike drivers weave through the thick traffic and up onto sidewalks. They're also noisy and emit a lot of exhaust. But not Alfredo Ferrellos. Want to see the river? Yeah, sure. A few months ago, the 38-year-old traded in his old gas-powered trike for a new one that runs on batteries. The new trike produces no exhaust, and Ferrello says he really feels the difference. Ferrello says that on his old trikes, he used to get sick a lot, like catching sinus infections, the flu, or asthma. But not anymore. very easy driving, comfortable. He says the e-trikes, as they're called, are also easier to drive and more comfortable, and they can hardly be heard over the din of the city. Right now, Ferrellos is one of only around 15 e-trikes out on the streets of Manila, but the Asia Development Bank imagines a whole city of them, a fleet of 100,000 within five years. E-trike provides all those solutions in a single go. So Hale Hosni heads the ADB's e-trike program. He says the new bikes will have wide-ranging benefits from saving oil to cutting pollution. The Philippine government spends 8 to $10 billion on importing oil. And of course, if you are a pedestrian, of course, you might like to read, ride into something which is safe, which is comfortable, and also air if it is cleaner. The ADB hopes to start taking bids from companies to build the e-trikes this spring. But the plan to help improve Manila's environment is getting pushback from an unexpected source, environmentalists. You will be using a lot of electricity that is very dependent on coal. Bo Bacangis is the Philippines' program manager for Greenpeace. She says e-trikes will only transfer pollution from the trikes' tailpipes to the smokestacks of coal-fired power plants. While the environmental impact is not direct, the emissions there is coming from the coal plant where you charge your electric trikes. Other environmentalists object to the e-trikes' use of new lithium-ion batteries. Red Constantino is director of Manila's Institute for Climate and Sustainable Cities. The problem with lithium-ion batteries is that there's virtually zero after-sales service in the country. If one single cell breaks down, the whole battery just goes kaput, and there is no repair shop anywhere for such batteries. Constantino says ordinary lead batteries have their own environmental problems, but at least there are recycling centers for them here. They're the kind of batteries his organization uses for its electric fleet of small passenger buses, known as jeepneys. Outside a Manila shopping mall, passengers climb into the back of an e-jeepney and pass change up to the driver. Constantino says producing more of these electric jeepneys would be a better solution to Manila's transportation problems than e-trikes for a number of reasons, starting with their size. The bigger the vehicle, the more efficient it is, and tricycles are, are small. They encourage uh, door-to-door transport of people instead of allowing them to walk. Constantino says trikes of any kind will also remain a big safety concern in Manila. They're very notorious in terms of not following any traffic rules. The Asia Development Bank, Sohel Hosni, concedes that his e-trikes aren't a perfect solution, but he says they'll be a big improvement over the old trikes. For instance, he says, while they might not eliminate pollution, they will cut carbon dioxide emissions by a third and could someday be runoff renewable power. And Hosni says the small e-trikes are much more affordable than bigger jeepneys, which helps poor drivers like Alfredo Ferrello make a living. 
back on the road, Ferrello tells me he's happy with his new electric trike. Not only is he healthier, but he says he brings home more money because it's much cheaper to charge his battery than it was to fill up on gas. I ask him, would he ever go back to driving a gas-powered trike? No. Nope, he says, not again. And with 100,000 more electric trikes on the way, he may soon have a lot of company. For The World, I'm Jason Struther, Manila. Back to our geo-quiz now. We asked you to identify the most western territory of the United States, an island in the Pacific where the U.S. military has a big presence and which could potentially be reached by a North Korean missile. The answer is Guam. Mark Ombrello teaches Korean history at the University of Guam. He says his students have heard that their island may be targeted by North Korea, but they're not panicking. I suppose it's sort of like preparing for a typhoon. We get typhoons and we know how to respond to typhoons, but this is much more existential than a typhoon. More existential than a typhoon, but not as frightening? Well, it's obviously very disturbing and it's very scary if you think about you know, the possibility of a missile being launched at us and, you know, coming close to us or even exploding on us. That's something that I don't know how to get my own head around. But uh, at the same time, well, in my case, you know, having done work on Korean history, it's really hard to say if all of this isn't just talk. But talk can have a chilling effect on a big source of income for Guam, tourism. But so far, says Umbrello, talk of a missile strike hasn't scared visitors away. This whole sort of threat from North Korea hasn't affected the visitor industry in any way. In fact, we had a marathon over the weekend, an international marathon, and there didn't seem to be any real scare over what's going on. As for rumors that a missile targeting Guam could be launched this week... People on Guam still seem pretty laid back about it, though some wonder whether they're supposed to be more worried than they are. I had a discussion with one of my colleagues. You know, she was hoping that more would be revealed in terms of what we should be doing to get prepared. I mean, is it time that we act like a typhoon is coming and get canned goods and do all these other things that uh, we normally do when we think a natural disaster is imminent? So... I guess we'll just have to see tomorrow how things sort of unfold. Mark Umbrello speaking to us from his office at the University of Guam. And once again, Guam, G-U-A-M, is the answer to our GeoQuiz today. Don't forget, by the way, that you can comment on any story you hear on the world at theworld.org. If you'd rather email, our address is theworld at pri.org. And our regular non-digital mailing address is theworld, one guest street, Boston, Mass., 02135. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. We began the program today with a remembrance of Margaret Thatcher, the former British prime minister who passed away today at the age of 87. Thatcher is remembered by many Americans simply as the Iron Lady. Remember the movie last year that earned Meryl Streep an Oscar for playing Thatcher? But then there are the other movies about Thatcher and her policies and what happened after she took apart the largely social welfare state that had defined Great Britain for decades before her. That theme of trickle-down economics, privatization of public companies mandated by a conservative government, and how that affected whole communities of people became a virtual subgenre of British films for several years. 
the full Monty, Brassed Off, and Billy Elliot, they all dealt with the blowback of what happened when government support evaporated where it once existed. And lo, God created the Tory party. May God forgive you. God! In this scene from Brassed Off, the trombone player for the Coal Pit marching band is about to lose his dad to TB. To keep his job, he's crossed the picket line at the coal pit. All he's got left is a part-time job playing a clown at birthday parties, and he vents his anger at the kids at the party on all that's wrong, pointing to Christ on the cross. He can take John Lennon. He can take those three young lads down at Ainsley Pit. He's even thinking of taking my old man and Margaret bloody Thatcher lives. But what's he studying playing at, eh? If you were a coal miner during the Thatcher years, you might have thought God wasn't on your side either. The world's Patrick Cox was the reporter on a story about that mine in Brastoff as part of a larger series on class around the world. Um, Patrick, when it comes to class and Thatcher, this was a side of Great Britain that many Americans had never seen. Yeah, indeed. It was mainly just through the movies. And and one of the guys that I spoke to who was a miner at, at this pit called Grimethorpe, I came across him because of what he was doing now, taking people on tours of a coal mine nearby that had become a mining museum. It no longer was a working coal mine, but they wanted to show people how they used to uh, work the pit. Right. I mean, many years ago, you might have seen How Green Was My Valley with Roddy McDowell. This was industrial mining, and a lot was at stake, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the the guys that I spoke to at the time had absolutely no doubt who it was who uh, changed their lives forever. And that, that is Margaret Thatcher. This was a person who, you know, when she came to power, she made it immediately clear that she wanted to modernize Britain. Most of the coal mines and the steelworks and, and what have you were all owned by the British government. And she wanted to privatize them. And she didn't appear to care what happened to the people who worked there. You can hear it in her voice. You can hear it here where she's talking about a new model British citizen, not someone who pays union dues, but but buys shares. It should be as natural for people to own shares as it is to own their own home or to own a car. People should not be classified as either earners or owners, as either employees or shareholders. They should be both. And you can really hear that stridency there. This most un-English, I think, Marco. You know, this is this is somebody who's saying, you're either with me or against me. And in that kind of almost George W. Bush mode, you know, it's, it's people have often compared Margaret Thatcher to Ronald Reagan. And I'm not sure if that's the case. Reagan had great charm, even if you didn't agree with him. With Margaret Thatcher, it was more difficult to like her if you didn't agree with her politics. So, Patrick, you lived through the Thatcher years. This is a story you know well. When you start hearing this voice of this new prime minister for the first time, you hear lines like the one we just heard, that strident voice. How did that strike you? Oh, it almost sends shivers down your spine. I mean, it certainly sends you back to a time when Britain was a very different place. And, you know, growing up then, I I wasn't a journalist. I was working in the theatre. And I remember designing the sound for a show that was about the miners' strike. It was actually almost taking place in real time during the miners' strike. And we would have miners outside the theatre fundraising for the miners' families. And and this was a a no-holds-barred attack on the Thatcher 
government's decision to privatize the, these mines, resulting in the miners' strike. Uh, it was it was it was very different times. I remember another play that I went to see. This was at a time when a lot of people felt very demeaned by what Thatcher was doing. Um, and, and in this play, I think people tried to sort of demean her back. She was portrayed as this sort of vaudevillian striptease artist who stripped down buck naked. And I, I think the idea was just to, to humiliate the image of, of Margaret Thatcher and, and make people in the audience feel good. It was, there, there was that degree of, of vitriol directed against her. You might say that striptease artist stripped down to the full Monty. Um, so we've talked about film. We've talked about theater. Um, music, also very important. Margaret Thatcher inspired many British musicians in the 1980s and not in a flattering way either. Uh, vilified by everyone, uh, it seems, from Morrissey, Pink Floyd, Elvis Costello, of course, and obviously Billy Bragg. Uh, we've heard that name a lot today. What's your take on the anti-Thatcher music scene during this time period? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, it just never seemed to stop. There was so much of it. I can't think of another politician, English-speaking politician anyway, who's had so many songs written about her that, that also actually a lot of them <laughs> were really quite popular. There's another band who you, you may remember, UB40, mainly known for kind of sweet reggae covers. But in among them is this song called Madame Medusa, which is all about Maggie Thatcher. Wow. Madame Marusa. This was this was very early in UB40's career. They were very much one of this this movement of do-it-yourself bands who you know put out songs on their own record label or or some small independent record label. They they were incredibly hardworking and would really put in hours, night times, weekends, you name it. They would get it done. And in retrospect, I, I realized that this was something of a you know a, a Thatcher ideal. This was how she wanted. The whole of Britain to work as even small businesses. She herself was the daughter of uh, a guy who ran a corner grocery store, and you know, in a different context, I think she would have been quite proud of some of these these bands that were putting out these songs, highly critical of her. Well, it's ironic, isn't it? Because uh, Thatcher, as a good old capitalist, wanted people to work hard and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. <laughs> and by being Margaret Thatcher, she got all these artists motivated to work hard and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Oh, oh, very much so. And they just didn't stop until she was done. The world's Patrick Cox landing us on the Margaret Thatcher cultural legacy. Thanks so much. You're very welcome, Marco. You can hear Patrick's report on Margaret Thatcher and Britain's class system at theworld.org. From the NAN and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. We'll be back tomorrow.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH, supported in part by Nan and Bill Harris, committed to supporting objective, unbiased reporting on national and international issues. By the Skoll Foundation, supporting social entrepreneurs and their innovations to solve the world's most pressing problems at skoll.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. By the Annenberg Foundation and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.